I'm Enrique Cerna, and welcome to Conversations. Tyrone Beeson is here. He works for the Seattle Times, where he is a writer for its Pacific Northwest magazine. He recently wrote a piece titled Black Like Me. It's time for a deeper conversation about race in America. It's a fascinating, personal, and timely piece in a time of a big divide in our state and country about issues of race, gender, and equity. Tyrone, welcome. Thank you. Nice to be here. There is so much about this piece that caught my attention, but I want you to tell me how this piece came about and, you know, why you decided that you needed to write this. Well, um, actually, an uncle of mine uh, gave me the book by uh, John Howard Griffin, uh, Black Like Me, when I was a teenager. And it was one of the first books I'd read about race. And uh, growing up as an African-American in, uh, in the South, in Kentucky, a uh, very rural area, uh, in a town that was majority white, actually, which is unusual uh, for a lot of places in the South, you know, I was really interested in the idea that a white man would even want to go into my world and understand what it was like. Let's just say that it wasn't something that I um, that I assumed many white people wanted to do at the time. And I, I think it was an act of bravery and courage that I, I grew to appreciate more uh, as I got older. It's really tough to think about yourself in color terms, even though people of color have to think about this every day. And I think that his act of acknowledging the color of his own skin and how that could affect uh, the way he lives his life and the way other people treat him uh, was really powerful. And then to physically change his skin and go into someone else's race, as I say in the in the book, and uh, taking that old um, adage about walking in another person's shoes, I mean, really doing that and going there um, was really special. And I was reading that alongside, you know, the autobiography of Malcolm X and uh, Soul on Ice. And so it was all in the mix. <laughs> yeah. And it made it better, actually, because you got, you got all the nuances of how race um, plays out, certainly between blacks and whites in this country. Um, so that experience of reading all those books, and uh, obviously Black Like Me, it's stuck with me my whole life. And as we approached uh, the, the, the presidential election, um, and you know, every week there was another video of uh, a police-involved shooting um, regarding an you know, African-American suspect of, of one, one sort or another. And, and I was already sort of feeling like we weren't talking about what was going on with that. And I, I was wondering, as a journalist, what kinds of questions can I ask um, of white people, actually, those in power, those who, have, uh, uh, who are entrusted with enforcing the law and so on, um, that are different from the ones that I might have asked 10 years ago or when I had just started my career a couple of decades ago. Is there something different we can say? I didn't want to write the same story about race and oppression and in, uh, inequality and have it sort of go nowhere, which is where a lot of conversations about race wind up. So there was a lot going on uh, with me as a journalist and what I, you know, and grappling with my own role and uh, uh, using the power that I have uh, as a writer to uh, get people to open up in a way that maybe they weren't willing or able to do before. It meant that I also had to open up and think differently about race. Um, so that's what it stemmed from. And then we had the election. And uh, that night was sort of, uh, you know, everybody had their, their feelings about the result. I looked at that electoral map and I saw all those red states there, and, I, and some of them are are from the region where I was born and raised. You know, I, white people are very much a part of my own experience growing up. I went to integrated schools and that kind of thing. And Kentucky born. Kentucky yeah. born, yeah, country boy. And so, 
it, it wasn't a feeling of hostility. It was more like, oh, that's what we are. <laughs> when I saw that result, for me, it's like we really do have to have a different conversation about race and talk about the things that drive our decisions in life, whether it's um, where we choose to work, who we choose to hire, uh, which candidates to follow, which ones we wind up voting for. Uh, everything is kind of on the table. I think um, decisions that are made in a civic space reveal a little bit about our character as a, as a society. And I wanted to get at that um, as best I could by using, uh, by using uh, race. And certainly this divide, this sort of eternal bad romance almost between black and white people in this country because we know each other so well and yet we know each other very little um, uh, to explore that idea you know and I, again i grew up in a, in a part of the country where blacks and whites live on the other side of the tracks from each other but in a way it's, it's a very intimate relationship um, many people in my family worked in white households as housekeepers and that kind of thing um, janitors and drivers and and that and so we were always encountering white power, white economic power, white social power and political power. Um, and our lives and livelihoods very much depended on the extent to which white people would uh, um, want to be around us, to be honest. And so the whole story of school integration, which I alluded to in the piece, you know, my dad um, went first to a segregated school, all black, and then was after um, you know the Supreme Court decision uh, in the 1950s, schools very slowly started to integrate, and his didn't integrate. Apparently, his high school didn't integrate until 1965 or so. He says, mm. and um, at the, he thinks that's right. And so that's only seven years before I was born. So you know, he went from an all white world, uh, all black world, to one that was mixed. There was deliberately mixed, <laughs> maybe not voluntarily and, and not with uh, open arms. And so that was kind of spinning around as well as I thought about how to do this story, how to write it. And so I started it with uh, reflections on our conversations about the presidential uh, elections in 2008. And the and conversations then, of course, this between you and your father. Between and me and my father and how that reflects a little bit about how we see politics and how we see ourselves in the country right. and in a country that clearly has had some sort of a I don't know, spiritual or emotional shift. And I needed to work through that before I could sit down and write the piece and do the, you know, do my job as a journalist. It's interesting um, for those who hopefully will read the story. Uh, you start this piece with that conversation with your father, and it has this sense of hope and change, you know, Obama's uh, slogans. Uh, and then it changes. Uh, and then you go on from there. Yeah, I mean, it's um it was it, it was an it wasn't just a change in leadership and a passing of the baton. It felt like we had a we did some sort of a leapfrog into the Obama years and then we got freaked out and went back to something else. <laughs> <laughs> That's how the conversation went. Yeah, like, whoa, I didn't It was so dramatic. Yeah. And, you know, when we f finally were able to talk about this, you know, the election result, and it just sort of popped up in conversation because I don't think either of us really wanted to bring it up. But in, in, it's not that this is not a Democrat or Republican thing. I think it was, an again, ex an expression of something deep in the soul of the country. But, you know, people like my dad and the generation before him and the generation before him, they know... An America that I think a lot of us don't want to talk about. I mean, you know, in other conversations, he told me about using colored water fountains, for example, and having to go to the back of a restaurant to order your food because there were no tables and you couldn't get served if you were black in the front anyway. I went to 
um, the downtown area of my, you know, my hometown with my grandma. And we sat at the counter at the Woolworths and I had my grape soda and hamburger and that kind of thing. The same setting that she would not have been able to use in her childhood. And so this was just, these, these ideas were exploding in my mind. The shift that happened with them and this fear that something was happening in the country right now where we'd either forgotten where we'd come from or we were maybe perhaps unwilling to, to, to explore how remnants of the past can, uh, can return in the form of leadership or a change in the, the opinions and the ideas of, a, uh, of society uh, in general. So his fear, maybe, that the country was willing to accept a kind of um, social climate and racial climate that we'd spent years fighting um, really struck me, you know, because it did go from hope and change to, to uh, hey, what's going on here? Yeah. And I wanted to be honest and transparent about that in the story. I didn't want to do this piece and have people see my byline and not know really who the writer behind this, this story was, you know, that I needed to put myself on the line in the same way that I'm encouraging white people and other people of color to do. It's personal, and uh, it's telling that story of, of your own history. Uh, and if you think about some of the things you said where your father was, it wasn't that long ago. That's what's... Uh, it wasn't, you know, and it was really a, a blink in history. And uh, I mentioned that, you know, that we were connected by the arc of history in, the, in that story. Uh, we're connected, obviously, because we know each other and love each other, but also because we are both historical figures in our own way. He grew up in the Jim Crow South, and it transitioned in his uh, formative years. I grew up in an integrated world, was bused across town to an elementary school and you know, to high school and that kind of thing. And we have a story to tell here, and I, and I wanted to make sure that readers understood that as they went into this piece, because the piece does cover some rather sensitive issues. Right. But it didn't take very long for his world to change and for mine to begin. And it didn't take very long for him to feel very hopeful about the idea that the country could even have a black president to wondering how that president could then be followed by someone who did use a lot of sort of racially charged rhetoric in his campaign. I'm not in a position to say what's in anyone's heart, so I won't go there, but it's the perception of the thing, as I mentioned in the story. Life experience does affect how you see events such as elections, um, how you see events such as um, the shootings of a black person in the middle of the street. And you have to kind of go there in your own head. I want us to go there with each other, to trust each other enough to talk about what's spinning around inside that we don't articulate. One of the things you did in this article was that you, um, there are some, some great photos in here. Um, you're a photographer, by the way. Johnny Andrews, really, right. yeah, really great photojournalist. Uh, you, two of you worked well together on this. Um, but you brought out uh, folks that are dealing with the issue of race and gender, uh, which in many ways sort of kind of are tied together. Tell me about that. Tell me about the people and, and why you wanted to do that. Well, again, it was all in an effort to do something that was a little bit unexpected, and not just for the reader, but for me. You know, I've, I've written so many stories about race and identity in, in all of its forms as a reporter at the Seattle Times. And I was just frustrated with um, the formula, you know, minorities telling their stories and white people, because, you know, Seattle is majority white, reading those and feeling very good that people are sharing, sharing a little bit of their lives. But 
it needed we needed to mix it up a little bit. So as I tend to do, I got inspired by a flyer on a light post on Capitol Hill <laughs> that said, Dear White People, and uh, this burlesque and comedy and, you know, uh, performance around, about race and identity and what have you. And so I went to it as a member of the community and sat in the back of the room. And, and it was really eye-opening because you had people who were putting their lives on the line, performers who were always putting sort of their best face on, you know, and uh, with the stage lights and the costumes, what have you, doing something very raw and autobiographical, but very artistic at the same time. And I love the idea of of burlesque as as a metaphor for talking about race, because often we we walk around with guises in order to get along with people that we don't know in the workplace, in life. Um, I've done it myself. We try to sort of erase a little bit of ourselves so that we're not offensive or we don't stand out, especially if you're a person of color in a city that's majority white. And I'll just speak for myself. I'm always going into to rooms where I'm the only person of color. So I want to be less obvious. I've been there with you. I've been there. I've been there too. I don't want to make waves. You know, it's exhausting to make waves in this way, to be noticed all the time because you're an outlier. And so these folks were just going there and talking about their skin and what's 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 within them uh, in terms of um, ethnicity, uh, sexual identity, and gender. And, and I just it was really profound. And I, I saw this performance in the wake of the election, actually. So as I'm dealing with all of these, this frustration about how to be a journalist in the next four years or so, um, I had this, uh, this catharsis. And I think most people in the, uh, in the audience uh, felt it too. And um, these, these performers were really making us go there. And, by, and, and many of the performances were, in fact, burlesque. And so the act of stripping down the outer layers, the clothing, and showing what's on the surface of the skin, and through the the, the form performances themselves, giving you a sense of what's going on in the soul uh, and in the heart. I just uh, thought this is a great way for me to talk about race because I think we have to do this with each other in society, and also to get them to explain how they're doing what they're doing. Uh, uh, the Seattle burlesque performer Boom Boom Larue is uh, the person that you're talking about. Um, she was the one that conceived this Dear White People um, as a way of uh, for local entertainers of color to express themselves. Yeah. Often, you know, even in the, uh, in the arts, uh, performers are taking on a role or they're, they're doing a job. And so the extent to which they can express themselves kind of varies depending on who's putting on the show and, and the setting involved the audience and what they think the audience might want. She mentioned that... Um, when the show first ran last year, um, that many of the performers that she'd recruited called her crying because they didn't know if, uh, if they could go there, if they could talk about themselves in such a raw way, if the material that they were working on would work in a performance like this. There was some insecurity involved, and she, I think it even surprised her, the, but, the, the but, amount but, of work. They were putting themselves on the line. Putting themselves on the line, coming out on stage from behind the curtains, but with their full emotional being intact, right? And that's different from just doing a dance or doing a burlesque or doing comedy, uh, uh, all of which were uh, involved in, the, in, the, in this production. It's you in the most um, uh, unguarded way uh, you can present yourself in the world to an audience of strangers who might judge you, who may not get it, who might walk out of the room, you don't know. And it's taking a chance. And I think that it's an act of good faith for those performers to do that in front of a live audience. And I think it's also an act of faith for us to go and see the show and listen with an open heart and watch what they're doing and really 
to think. Try to get it. Yeah. 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 By the way, what's Boom Boom's real name? Oh, Jessica Rosa. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't think she was Boom Boom. She prefers Boom Boom. They yeah. all prefer the stage <laughs> names. Is that right? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Now, the other person, one of the others, was a performer and activist, uh, calls themselves Lady B. Tell me about Lady B. The Lady B did a performance that was mind-blowing. I mean, they, And this is still part of Dear White People. Yes. Right. Yes. Oh, yes. Yeah. That wound up with this... Um, I don't I called it, they really went for the jugular because uh, they had two white men come up on stage and uh, hold pieces of watermelon uh, that could be eaten and devoured. And of course, you know, any black person knows there's a stereotype that we like fried chicken and watermelon, okay? So to take a stereotype and to physically devour it and own it um, in front of an audience of white and black and uh, Asian American and Latino and, and um, uh, people was amazing. And I I saw it happening. Like, when I saw those watermelons, I knew it was going to go down. <laughs> and I thought, oh my, this is not going to go well. It was so amazing. People were cheering and shouting. And it was this, this sort of letting out of a stereotype, obviously, but the tension around these stereotypes uh, that we keep locked inside, black and white and... and, and uh, you know, I found it to be very refreshing. Now, some might find it a little off-putting, but sometimes that discomfort is a part of the process of getting to the next level. And the fact that the Lady B uh, had the courage to do that, to really mine something that is so powerful and painful, I think. Um, um, and Lady which B really special. is a transgender yes, yes. person. Yes, and so there are issues around sexual identity and forming oneself in a world that often doesn't let you do that. So there were so many things going on in that one sort of vignette yeah. or series of vignettes, you know, um, uh, and assembled. And black as well. Black. So you have, all, <laughs> you have a lot of things going on. <laughs> you threw yeah. the kitchen sink in there. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, you know, I just think that that's, that's amazing. And again, this happened in the wake of, you know, the election and everything that was going on in my own head about how to do journalism. And they were, in a way, doing journalism. Uh, uh, but with themselves, their own stories, putting it out for an audience uh, um, for the purpose to, of entertaining them, of course, but to foster uh, knowingness and understanding um, across all these lines. One of the person that you uh, feature in, in the article, in the story, is um, a woman that uh, I talked to recently, and that is uh, Robin D'Angelo, who is a uh, a trainer, a diversity trainer, and, and an author. But she also has uh, become quite well known because she ter- uh, coined this term uh, "white fragility," and where she's really saying that you know white people have to look at their own privilege, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, kind of, and as a, she is a white woman who comes from a poor background, but has done quite well. But basically, she's calling out her own folks. Well, somebody's got to do it. I'm tired of it. (laughs) You know, this is the thing. I didn't want to write another story about race where it's a black journalist talking about the need to talk, and we don't have any white people talking about the need to talk. The fact of the matter is we live in a very white city and region and for the time being country, although that is obviously changing. And I think that demographic change might be a part of the angst and frustration that we see manifested, you know, manifested in election results and, 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 and other things in society. But in any case, we need people like Robin to, Dr. D'Angelo, yeah. to talk about what it is like to be white 
in this country right now and what ha- that has mean over centuries and how that privilege, I mean, we live in a country that was designed for white people and for white men very right. specifically. How has that um, built up over time and what does it look like? And what does your skin say about you? And what she knows and what I think I know from my years of writing about this, and I'm not no expert, by the way, is that it's very hard for white people to talk about race in any way. And what she told me, we had a great conversation about this. The idea of white fragility is this, it's like a defensive, a defense mechanism. We kind of sh- um, move to the back of the room, you know, white people, she said, you know, when, when this kind of thing happens, when this, these conversations come up, because we don't want to be implicated in it. Uh, there's a sense, I, th- I think, and just from my interview with her, that white people um, uh, fear that they'll be scuffed up, as I say in the story, if they engage in this. They might feel complicit somehow or neglectful when it comes to discussing race. And, of course, that feels bad. People don't want to be scolded and lectured and told that their entire being makes someone else's life Miserable. I read that in some of the comments, by the way. <laughs> yes. And it's a real thing, right? Um, I was really moved by that. And I had to sit there. It was a phone interview. And I just sat there and I listened to her and I let her say this because it's hard for me to hear that someone doesn't want to talk because they're afraid that they might have to take responsibility. Because the way I see it, people of color are always taking responsibility for race and racism and oppression and putting themselves on the line in front of audiences often that are all white and hoping that they're going to understand and not run out of the room and and say, well, these people are just complaining, they'll never get over it. Let history lie in the past. And it's an act of courage, I think, for anyone to talk about this issue. And white people have to come up to the table and share with us, and we have to listen and understand um, everything that's going on behind their skin, underneath their skin as well. I mean, it's difficult, it's painful, there are a lot of ugly mem- uh, moments in America's history that people don't want to dredge up and, and discuss. Uh, uh, but that's my life. My skin reflects that history. It's in my blood. I can't walk out of the room because I'm still going to be a black person who's attached to this arc of history that I mentioned in the piece. But so are white people. I wouldn't have the black experience that I've had, nor would my father or my mother or the people who came before him without the participation of white people. It does not mean all, but there was a culture of white privilege and supremacy that made life better for certain kinds of people, even those who might have been poor and disadvantaged a little bit. That goes to our founding fathers. That goes all the way back and before that, before that. And I carry that around with me all the time just because of the color of my skin. And sure, it doesn't affect every decision that I make, and it doesn't dominate my consciousness every moment of every day, but it's a lot. And when I walk out of my home every day, it's with me. And it's with white people too, whether it's acknowledged or not. And so our conversation was really about that, having the courage to just acknowledge what is so real and obvious about us, uh, and not just black and white. You know, We live in a city where there's a large Asian American population as well, and with a whole story to tell with regard to white people and also in, 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 in other ways. Why don't we just talk about that and come out of it stronger and uh, having grown a little bit? We're not going to love each other at the end of these conversations, perhaps. That may take years for us to really know each other that way. But I said this to a friend recently, you know, asking someone to talk about race is like asking someone to, uh, to marry you. It's a request for the ultimate 
good faith and understanding and knowing. It's a building of a relationship that will take years to really come to fruition, but it's got to start somewhere. And with marriage, it's with a ring on a finger. But for me, it's what is your story? And can I tell you mine? And let's go from there. And let's have some sense of understanding. Hopefully. Yeah. Hopefully. And if we don't understand each other, hopefully we'll, we'll, we'll have some facts and uh, life experiences to, uh, to draw on when we make decisions in our lives moving forward. Let's talk about the reaction. Um, what's come out so far? Well, I knew that this story would provoke uh, a very strong reaction. It almost is always the case that race makes people um, a little uncomfortable. Some of the reactions uh, immediately um, following the, uh, the publication of the story online were, were negative to the point of people who identifying as white in some cases telling me, and I suppose all black people, why we were simply incapable of uh, functioning in, a, in, in, in the society in which we were born and raised and have contributed so much. Some people made a, the comment to the effect of, why are you shoving race down our throats yet again? Why are you forcing me to think about this and to read about this one more time? And I've, I've, I've gotten that in other stories, and I know a lot of my other colleagues who write about issues around race, culture, and identity have dealt with this. It's a funny reaction because it's so boilerplate. Um, almost the same words as previous stories where this comes up, you know? And so... When I read those, I thought, wow, there's the same thing that Dr. D'Angelo was talking about, this defensiveness, this running away from the idea that race is even a thing that needs to be discussed, and that racism and uh, white privilege are real enough that they bear a real a serious debate across across lines. And no connection to them. And no connection. They don't want to con yeah. It's... Um, Leave me alone. I don't want to deal with this. This, you know, this has nothing to do with me. Why are you, why are you ramming this down our throats? So that, that was there was an, a number of the the uh, the comments. And They're I right in front of me right now, so I can, and I, I can you know, quote you. Yeah, you go right ahead. Yeah. Because I think we need to see what we're dealing with here. Because when when people of color, uh, when women, when LGBTQ people talk about themselves. Um, we're, it's a risk, right? I mean, we're taking a chance that people are going to receive that information uh, with an open mind and with an open heart. But we know that that's probably going to be a, only half of the response and that other people are going to resist and sometimes in very aggressive ways. And yeah, that sort of hurts. I'm a journalist. I can deal with it. I was more concerned about uh, other people who are of color, you know, reading this and these comments. But uh, you know, there were a lot of great comments written to me personally, uh, people who felt like this was a great conversation to have, and thanks for, for putting it on the table, especially now. And, um, you know, I, I was gratified by that. It wasn't all negative by any means, but certainly that, that, those, that negativity can, uh, can influence the, the conversation and steer it in a way, in a direction that it shouldn't go. In this time, in this place, and I think even before we got to where we are now in America, um, you know, politically and everything else. You know, I've done some of this work as well. The challenge I always find and is that, okay, what do you do afterwards? Uh, because, you know, you kind of pour your heart and put all your efforts into bringing people together to, to have a conversation. Um, and then it's, okay, what next? How can you make a difference? Well, for me, you know, I'm... I'm a journalist, and uh, obviously this story has a point of view, and it's trying to push us toward a, a different conversation, any conversation at this point. Um, 
but it's in the hands of people who read the piece and who see me talking about it uh, out in the community to move it forward. Um, I can do what I can to be a catalyst and to create a space uh, um, in my stories to explore these issues and get the ball rolling. But, you know, people are going to have to talk about race in their living rooms when I'm not there, you know. Um, when no person of color is at the dinner party, talk to all your white friends or whoever it is, you know, about these issues. Bring it up in your regular life because news stories can only open the door. Race is a very, very personal issue. And we have to talk about it in the civic space. But I think it's more important to talk about it in those spaces that are our own, uh, those spheres of influence that we directly control and that uh, help to mold us. So with our friends and associates and loved ones, that's where, to me, and inside your own head, just sit and think about yourself in these terms as awful as it might seem to do that. But take a chance that there might be some information and wisdom um, in your own life experience that'll help reshape your ideas about race and, and, uh, and that dialogue. At the very least, it's going to take some courage. And courage can only come from within the person. I can't make a person be brave enough to talk to me about being white or being black or, or uh, Latino or whatever it might be. That has to come from you. And so I, I look at my job as um, provoking and inspiring, you know. Um, I'm not an activist. I tell stories and I try to put the pieces together. Um, the rest is up to us in our everyday lives to make sure that whatever it is that I've written and my colleagues and so on um, have written about race, that um, that you absorb it and, and make it mean something in the way that you live. Tyrone Beeson of the Seattle Times, and he is a writer for Pacific Northwest Magazine. His story, Black Like Me, It's Time for a Deeper Conversation About Race in America, can be found on the Times website at seattletimes.com. And Tyrone, thanks so much for the conversation. Keep writing. Thank you. It was a pleasure. All right. And we'll talk more next time. I'm Enrique Cerna, and this is Conversations. To hear more podcasts from KCTS 9 Digital Studios, visit kcts9.org slash podcasts.